Hello and welcome to Kiri Presents or Inspiring Stories. This is the podcast where I sit down with a special guest to share their inspiring story, journeys and thoughts along the way. So sit back and enjoy. Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week is a week-long campaign dedicated to talking about mental health problems before, during and after pregnancy. The week is organised and led by the Perinatal Mental Health Partnership UK, who launched the first ever UK Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week almost a decade ago now, in 2014. Perinatal mental health problems are also one of the leading causes of death warning during pregnancy and the year after birth. Up to 20% of women struggle with their mental health during pregnancy or within a year of having a baby. However, only half of these are identified. Louise owns Nurture Nourish B postnatal coaching and support. She became passionate about supporting mum's well-being after her own struggle with postnatal pain, depression and anxiety and finding that the NHS care system did not offer the whole person support she needed to get and stay well. Louise now supports women who have found their journey to motherhood not quite as they expect it to be, creating a space for them to feel safe, cared for, heard and seen. As a maternal mental health advocate, ICF accredited mama rising coach and massage therapist, Louise uses a variety of healing modalities to support women in their healing journey, restoring inner clarity and calm with the aim of achieving sustainable long-term emotional and physical wellness so every woman can regain hope and happiness. And here's the show. Hi Louise. Hello Kiri. Thank you so much for having me around your house. You're welcome. Thank you. It's, we've been meeting this for a while actually. We have we? been meeting this for a while. Yeah. So I've seen all that you've been doing over the years mm-hmm. and obviously we've met at Little Drown in the crash. Yeah. Not in the crash. We yeah. Were. yeah, we weren't there sucking devils and crying. Yeah. Well, we were. We were definitely doing some of that. But yeah, the kids yeah. were in there. The kids were in there. And that was an absolute godsend. Oh my God, yeah. Wasn't it just? Wasn't it? Wasn't it just, yeah. Our little teary workspace. Yeah. <laughs> Drop the kids off. Yeah. Go to work. Do a bit of exercise. Just. Yeah, just. If we could have the if energy. We had the energy to do it. If we'd had any sleep that night. Yeah. I love the fact we used to go in with the best of intentions. You were really good at it. And so was Rachel. A few of us were not so great at that. We'd go in and just go, I had no sleep. <laughs> Got so much work to do. And then drink coffee and chat for three yeah. hours and get no work done at all. But yeah. Yeah. But we were really productive at the same time, weren't we? Because we used to yeah. chat about our work mm. and then find things out that actually enhanced. Yeah, that's right. We had a good little co-working space, yeah, didn't we, we did. where we all kind of shared our little business ideas and, and it all bounced off each other. Naturally as well, yeah, didn't it? It, did, it wasn't yeah. supposed to happen. No. Just... Yeah. So good. Yeah, I know. And the kids uh yeah, the kids thrived in that environment, didn't they? So even though you know, when you drop your kid off at childcare, you never think they're thriving. You always think they're crying their eyes out missing yeah. you, but they weren't. But <laughs> in my head, Finn was devastated that I wasn't with him at all times. Yeah, so, yeah. that must have been really hard. The, yeah. the attachment. Yes, yeah. the attachment was, uh, yeah, it was really tough. It's always tough dropping your kid off, isn't it? Especially if they don't like it. I think that's the hardest thing, mm. going through that, you know, the tears and having to walk away. It almost yeah. goes against every mothering instinct that we've got, doesn't mm. it? To be, I, I mean, I say that, that's a sweeping statement. Some mums don't have that at all. You know, they can have kind of drop off and go whereas other mums feel that you know that anxiety those tears super deeply so but we all need the break don't we can't yeah. be healthy can to have them like 24 7 so no. we 
that was a perfect little break it for was us, perfect, wasn't it? Yeah, because it was mornings only and it was, yeah. it was just super easy. And, it, and I think it gave us real focus as well. You know, we kind of booked them in and you were there. And because it was only nine till lunchtime, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just a couple of hours. You didn't feel the guilt about no. leaving them because it was literally two or three hours. And you Picked them up for lunch. We sometimes did lunch, lunch together, together go to the park, do whatever. So mm. it was perfect. It was lovely. Um, hopefully they'll resurrect that at some yeah. point, which would be nice. Yeah, I really hope they do. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I remember you telling me about all your mental health, yeah. maternal mental health advocation that you were doing during mm. that time. Yeah. Is that word? Is that... Application? Ab- no. uh, yeah, well, I think it is. <laughs> mental health advocate advocation. Yeah, let's go with it. I mean, it's, a, it's a word now. Because you were coming probably out of your experience to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, I was. But it's still yeah. very much fresh in your mind. Oh, wow, yeah. So you yeah. wanted to work on yourself, but also mm. do something to help others. Yeah. So, yeah, let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Shortly after giving birth to Finn, you did suffer with more than just post-baby blues, didn't you? So mm. tell us a little bit about that, Louise. Yeah. So I guess my experience is pretty unique. So when I talk about this, I have to kind of set a context of it because there's so many facets to good mental health generally not just good maternal mental health so you know loads of things feed into that part of well-being and health and you know what is wellness and this you know it's a really broad deep mm-hmm. question it's cavernous so for me in some ways I was lucky because I had experience of depression after my dad died um mm. which was a long time ago now but at the time I think it was five or six years before it was four years my dad passed away four years before we decided to start having children mm-hmm. that's not um, a long time that's not a long time and actually when we when I when we decided that we wanted to try and have a baby I was actually still on antidepressant medication mm. because I'm a tough old ridiculous stoic stupid girl and after my dad died I was in that zone of like I haven't got depression I'm fine so it took so it you a while so it took me a while right. to actually recognize that I wasn't okay okay and so it took me a while to get medication and come back to the other side of that and I was actually on antidepressants when we decided to have Finn so I only came off them to get pregnant because it's not advised that you stay on them well for me at the time it wasn't it's different now and it depends what medication you were on Mm -hmm. caveat that so yeah anyway I I came off them kind of came off those slowly and then we started our pregnancy journey I was 35 so I was an older mum and sadly our our pregnancy get even getting pregnant was a real journey we had recurrent miscarriage and then we finally got to having Finn he's stuck (laughs) But, you know, I think uh, anyone listening who's experienced miscarriage or is experiencing fertility, if you then actually end up being pregnant, that pregnancy isn't the kind of joyous floating around, you know, sound of music experience (laughs) that you want it to be. And sometimes that can be really hard because you've got friends that are having that around you. You know, they're glowing, they're blooming, they're graceful in their pregnancy. And I think for, you know, for women who've had an infertility journey, it can be a different experience because you spend a lot of your time worrying that you're going to miscarry again, which mm-hmm. is a natural experience. And because miscarriage is very, you know, kind of taboo and it's not very spoken about, it's better now than it was, you know, you just carry that with that. You carry that grief and that worry through you. It's constant anxiety, constant anxiety all the way through. All the way yeah. through. You, know, you can imagine every time you go to the toilet, you're thinking, oh God, you know, don't bleed, don't bleed, don't bleed. So it's, it's a kind of, you're elevate, your stress levels are elevated and your anxiety is elevated before you even birthed your child, yeah. you know. So we had that process. And then, you know, the next kind of pouring into the mental health pot was I actually got symphys pubis dysfunction, which is where your pelvis, the joint at the front of your pelvis separates slightly. Mm-hmm. It's massively painful because your pelvis kind of misaligns. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, hobbling around from about week 28 
So coupled with the anxiety, I then had chronic pain. God. <laughs> and then we yeah. finally got to Finn. Uh, we finally got to birthing. I think I generated so much anxiety in my pregnancy. I wanted to hypnobirth and I did the courses and I was super zen and I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to breathe my baby out. <laughs> I didn't have the candles and it was brilliant and I loved the hypnobirthing yeah and uh yeah we hypnobirthed for about 14 hours wow but Finn decided the hypnobirthing was not for him I can imagine <laughs> and uh yeah when with Sadie when I checked how much I dilated I think we've been going you know a very long time I was exhausted and the midwife said to me yes Louise um I think we need to do something more than deep breathing because <laughs> you haven't dilated at all in the last 14 hours. <laughs> and at that point, I just looked at my husband, Matt, and was like, just give me all the drugs. <laughs> I'm over this. I'm done. <laughs> so we literally went from, you know, beautiful zen birth pool to, yeah. um, you know, on the table with all the medications, epidural, all the rest of it. Finn still did not want to come out. And so we ended up with emergency C-section. And then sad, I lost I lost quite a lot of blood after my C-section as well. So... You know, the whole experience, right from kind of even thinking about conception mm. <laughs> all the way through to having him in my arms in those very first minutes. And he was whisked away very quickly because I was bleeding and I had to be put, you know, under general anaesthetic. Yeah. And sewn up as it were. Sorry, it's a bit graphic, but yeah. So we had about a week in hospital and then Finn wasn't feeding very well because he was tongue-tied and no one picked up on it. Yeah. So breastfeeding was painful and difficult. But no one picked up on his tongue tie. So then I kind of went into this headspace of, well, it's me. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't do it. And I'm type A personality. So once I make a decision that I'm going to do something, mm-hmm. I'm doing it much to my own detriment because, you know, I kind of powered through and I wish someone had said to me, Louise, you are a hot mess of exhaustion. And not surprisingly, because of your journey to get to this point, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you should consider alternative feeding but you were so determined I was so determined in work exactly and you thought it'd be the same having a baby exactly I carried over that personality into Mm. just put your mind to it get it done make a list crack on (laughs) you know because that's been my life and that served me really well yeah up until motherhood so yeah so then we entered this crazy breastfeeding journey with all the stuff that goes through that and Finn was a two-hour waker so for the first well a long time probably you know nine months at least I breastfed for 14 months and when I look back on that experience, that's, like I said, it's unbelievable. But I wish, you know, in hindsight, I wish someone had stepped in from a clinical or a therapy or any of the people that I had contact with and said, Louise, just stop. Like, mm. this is not you know, doing you any good. This isn't doing you any good. And in my kind of, you know, my role now in the mental health, maternal mental health world as a coach, I kind of dig into the reasons why I made those choices with the mums mm. that I talk to. Like, why do we make the choices we make? And there's, there's some historical stuff that comes into play, mm-hmm. mindset-wise, that, you know, we kind of go through when we talk to, when I talk to the different mums, you know, why we make the choices we make as mums, um, which seem right, but not necessarily for us. So, yeah. so yeah, so so I think, go back to the point, I had my six-week postnatal check, I was already teary, I was already exhausted, mm-hmm. sat in front of my doctor, she, you know, and she did that classic thing called, how's baby? Mm. Is he sleeping? Is he feeding okay? Mm. Tick, 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 tick. And you're okay. I can see you're doing well. You know, so it was just, just, just the language was yeah. very, please don't tell me you're anything other than okay, because that's not all right. And then mm. I have to do something with you. Yeah. And I kind of said, well, I'm, you know, I'm super emotional and I feel quite a bit brain foggy because I'd had depression before. I recognized, I was lucky in some ways. I recognized yeah. the symptoms more 
then maybe a woman that hadn't had any mental health experiences would. So you did speak up despite her... I did speak up despite her kind of leading language. And she said, well, are you breastfeeding? And I said, yes, I am. And she was like, well, we could give you antidepressants, but if you're breastfeeding, you know, the research is there to say it's okay, but, you know, it's it's up to you. Again, there was a lot of language around, well, yeah, you know, if you choose that, then that might not be the best choice for your baby, mum. So, of course, that led me into a place of, well, I only want to do what's best for my baby, so I shouldn't take antidepressants. Forget about me. Forget about me. Exactly, that total self-sacrifice. Forget about me. I'll carry on breastfeeding. It's all clear that I need to do what's best for my baby, so that's going to be breastfeeding and not taking antidepressants. And then it was, you know, um, we can refer you to the talk therapies, so CBT and counselling, but there's a six-month waiting list. Mm. So you go through that process. So there's a lot of toing and froing, you know, and I just battled on. And because I was high functioning, meaning when I presented to friends and family, I was very, I'm fine. Yeah. And that's your personality, isn't it? Yeah. That's how how I come across. Mm. And, you know, and again, in my work now, you know. Would you say you masked it? I totally masked it. I totally masked it. And because also, I, you know, I did a lot of masking because I was self-employed and mm. I wanted to carry on being self-employed and, you know, a lot of my identity was attached to my work and, you know, I had to kind of, we're talking a kind of year on now, actually, we're talking, you know, when yeah. we met at the crash. The timeline is very yeah. quick, isn't back it? Back to work. Yeah, back yeah. to work. And um, Having yeah. your own business, you go back to work a bit quicker you than do. others Yeah, well, exactly. You? I mean, I was still answering emails, I was still taking phone calls, I was in touch with my clients that were being covered by maternity contract that I put in place but they were still my clients and they added pressure added pressure so yeah and also as well you know and and it feels really odd to say this now as a mental health advocate but I was and this is through no fault of my parents I was raised in a family where mental health stress all the chat around I can't come to work because I'm stressed myself and my dad we used to spend a lot of time going oh stressed they're signed off because they're stressed, you know. Oh, really? So in that, yeah. I grew up in that environment. My mental health was almost seen as a failure, a little bit pathetic. It was weak. Mm. Get on with it. You know, there was a reason for that. My dad was brought up that way. He was a police officer, so very stoic and a very kind of, and he had lots of illness. So, and he just got on with it. Yeah. So when you grow up in that stoic environment, put your hand above the parapet and kind of go, I am not all right. It's a big step. It's very exposing. It's very vulnerable. And if you're not used to operating in that space, it's a challenging move to... You're challenging your own identity by saying, I'm not okay. I don't know what to do about it. But such a brave move to actually then Mm. seek help and get that support. Yeah. I think what's really interesting is that the clinical pathway, so how how we approach maternal mental health or mental health in general in the UK, is you go to your GP, you get medicated, you get referred to talk therapies... And then you'll be okay. Mm. But there's no conversations around the practical support network that comes alongside the more holistic approach, a whole person approach to how we support mums, dads as well, get mm-hmm. postnatal depression. Yeah. How we support, sometimes, yeah, we do. Yeah. How we support families, how we support mums, how we support them as a whole to allow them to kind of journey what is sometimes quite rough water together and understand that there's more than you know there is more needed than just pills and chat Mm. and that those things are going to make you miraculously better because there's conversations around you know how do I ask for help because if you're not someone that's used to asking for help from friends and family work colleagues 
your kind of support network, your peer group, you don't have the language. Yeah. You literally don't have the words to to go. You're not used to it. And people are, it's quite affronting to people who only know you as someone who's self-sufficient and a doer and a fixer and an organizer. High functioning. High functioning. It's very affronting for people to see the person that they know in that role and have loved for many years in that role to then be like, help. And they can't. They don't know how, but there's a lot of behavior change. They don't know how to help. And there's a lot of, you know, perceptions and receiving help and this, that and the other. So it's complex. It's very complex. But yeah, yeah, so that was my journey and that's why. um, So when you did tell your friends and family, mm. how supportive were they? And you talked about the clinicians and Mm. the the health visitors. How were they? What support did you get from everyone involved? So the health visitor stuff is right at the start, isn't it? So they could see I was struggling with breastfeeding. They could see I was very, very tired. At that time, there wasn't really any signposting. The health visitors certainly didn't recognise that I was struggling mentally at all. I'm wondering now, if they have the mental health training. They have... Probably... Yeah, they have do. an awareness of it. I think that there is a fear around... We're going back seven years, and I think things have definitely changed now. The yeah. men- mental health is definitely in the world, you know. It's not okay to be... It's not okay to be okay the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> it's not okay to be okay, anyone. <laughs> so, it's definitely in there, isn't it? It's, it's kind of, you know, a bit higher at the priority list. But I think back then, it wasn't. We were still in that kind of, you know, muddle through, you'll be fine. And this is all normal. This is all part of pregnancy. You yeah. know, being emotional is part of being a mum. And being exhausted is part of being a mum. And being worried is all part of being a mum. And if so, you had other mum friends, they were probably focusing on their own well-being as well. Mm, and mm, mm. trying to get through things, weren't they? Yeah. But did anyone sort of recognise that you were going through more of a deeper struggle? Again, I think that my mum did. My mum mm. 100% did. But she was living up in Gloucestershire, 100 miles away at the time. She moved after down. Her she's moved down that's now. So Thank nice God. That she's I moved know, down. hello, mummy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. That was only recent, though. That wasn't was it? recent. Three mm. weeks before COVID. Three weeks no before way. lockdown. She managed to sell her house oh, and get down here. I know. What timing? I know. It was amazing timing. And my mum is immunocompromised as well. So we were able to have her mm. in our bubble. Yes. Because I was, I was the only person that could support her down here. Yeah. So, but yeah, thank God she squeezed through the door. <laughs> Otherwise, she would have had two years in Cheltenham. Yeah. Another two years, and I wouldn't have been able to see her. So. Yeah, it was difficult. My mum did, and my mum did as much as she could to come down and stay down here for as long as she could, but she was caring for her own mum who was sick. And Matt's mum and dad as well, they they were living in Devon at the time, so they used to come back and forth. But again, there is a very strange generational change between our mums, how they, the world that they mothered in Mm -hmm. and the world that we mother in is hugely different. So different. Vastly different. Like... It's untrue how to, you know, you can't, yeah. you can't fathom it. You can't fathom it. And even my mum says to me now, you know, she says, you mums, you're here, there and everywhere. You're working, you're, you know, looking after your kids. You're looking after your husbands. You're looking after your houses. You're off on the holiday, you know, off on, you know, she said like, you do too much, do too much with the kids. Entertain them too much. Exactly. All of it, you know, mm. and she said, it's no wonder you're all burnt out and mental. <laughs> so yeah, thanks much. <laughs> Um, but she's right she's right we live in a society now we we have literally zero ability or acceptance of slowing down and rest if we're not busy we're not productive if we're not hustling we're not you know we're failing and I think that my mum she was great at recognizing it but there was some language around well I didn't have any help when I had you and your sister and your dad was working shifts and really and he was ill so there you know there there is a lot of language around that and you know my mother-in-law said the same I didn't have any help and I was a child and I ran a farm and it's kind of 
that language, non-intentionally, of course, is very unvalidating, isn't it? Mm. You know, when you're kind of sat going, crying your eyes, like, I'm so tired, I can't function. Um, they don't realise, do they, what they're saying sometimes are yeah, lovely yeah. months. Yeah, they just don't, they don't realise. I mean, why would they? And to be honest, I wouldn't have, mm. unless I've been through my experience and dove so deeply into maternal mental health and trainings and coaching. And, you know, if I hadn't been on my own journey and looked very deeply with a magnifying glass as to the landscape of it all, I would, I'd be saying the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So as friends and family, they all had their own babies. Friends had their own babies to deal with. They were working. Matt's got, my husband's got his own business. So he was oh, very aware, but also he's got his own business to yeah. run, you know, and because we were all self-employed, I understand that. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was difficult. And, you know, for my husband, especially, it was super tough because I, part of my maternal mental health experience was, um, postnatal anxiety. Mm-hmm. So rather, I was very lucky rather than being detached from my baby, which is quite common in postnatal depression. I was overly attached mm-hmm. because I was hyperprotective of him because of our fertility journey. Yeah. So I loved him so hard and nobody else could give him the love that I could give him. Absolutely not. And sadly, that was quite damaging for his relationship with Finn. Because for the first kind of two or three years of his life, Finn oh, did, not Finn, know, yeah. did not want to know. Did not want to know Matt at all, really. You know, mm. he cried a lot. It was awful. But thank God Matt stuck around. <laughs> Didn't run for the hills. <laughs> which I wouldn't blame him if he had all at the time. Um, we're still here and now. He's got a great relationship with Finn. Yeah. So, um, But, you know... For a lot of other families, it doesn't look like that. You know, it's um, it's it's definitely a difficult path to travel mm. from a marital point of view. Yeah, and so like the friends, friends all had babies. Luckily, I had you lot at the little dam. Yeah, to share my <gasps> sorrows with. Oh, so yeah, much. and the lovely nannies at the little dam centre yeah. as well. Linda and they're beautiful. They looked beautiful. after as well, didn't they? Yeah, I really do hope that crash opens up again. I do. It's just I do. Unreal. It was. It was. And the best thing about it was was that Linda and her team were. You know, they were like our nans, weren't they? Like they our were. surrogate mummies. And they were so brilliant. We dropped them off. And if we were crying, they could see we were teary. And they'd always come through to the bar and the cafe and say, you okay? Yeah, you know, and they'd ask settled. us if we were okay. And they were like, you okay? They're settled. Don't worry. Yeah. You know, if you want them, you know, it's just, it was lovely. And yeah. I, because I, we're literally a little walk away. We just crossed down the road. Yeah. Like, literally, literally 30 seconds out of the crash and into yeah. the cafe. And there's no other childcare setting like that, I don't no. think. Where you drop your kid off and you're allowed to hang around in case there's a, re- you know, just yeah. so you feel close to them, but you've still got your space. Your own space at the same um, time. It really was a unique offering and I will do my damnedest to get it, <laughs> to get it reinstated. Come on. We'll so after it. going through all this experience, Louise, you're mm. now advocating for maternal mental health, which mm. is absolutely fantastic, as we've said, because yeah. you could have just sat back on your laurels and thought, yeah. I'm fine now. Well, not fine, but mm. I can work on myself. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all right. But you actually wanted to put your experience into helping others. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about what you do. Yeah. So I'm already qualified as a nutritional and massage therapist. So I had a background in therapy and I don't practice that actively as a sole therapy, if you like, anymore. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of joined in those, those two together. Mm-hmm. And after my experience, I was, I was really surprised at the, clinical pathway so the journey for mums postnatally antenatally so pregnancy you know I think we're great there's a lot of education there's a lot of support groups there's NCT there's antenatal yoga there's so much so I went into during pregnancy I was hugely supported even with you know my pelvic issues and my foot in my infertility 
miscarriages again is a bit of a taboo and no one really knows who to where to go with that but yeah. generally pre-baby mm-hmm. I felt well looked after by mm-hmm. the NHS that's by, good you know it, good. it was great yeah. but postnatally once the struggle started there was very little outside of going online and looking yourself but I researched you know postnatal depression support groups I researched how to recover from postnatal depression so I you did all this research. I did all the research myself and can really find and also I kind of you trust the clinicians don't you so you trust the GPs yeah. and you trust the counsellors and stuff put you in the right direction to put you in the right direction so after I was medicated that stabilised me and the talk therapy stabilised me and I had some cognitive behavioural therapy to help with my anxiety so I became very stable so I would say like two and a half years postnatally so it was quite a long you know this whole process was a long mm. time we had all the waiting lists all as the well waiting before you got the talk therapies yeah and... all the waiting lists and also that constant evolution of your child so one minute they're sleeping one minute they're yeah. not one minute you feel well because you've had you know half a night's sleep rather than no sleep <laughs> me for prime minister on those days and then... <laughs> take on the world after you know three hours consistent sleep and then you know you have days when it's just awful you know the days when they're sick and they're up all night and you're up all night so it's you know it's such a roller coaster and I think that for me the reason why I retrained so to couple with my nutrition and massage I retrained as a mama rising coach and facilitator now mama rising is a real deep dive into how women are supported postnatally in their journey from being a woman independently, you know, making their own decisions to becoming a mum. And that education, those learnings have been lost over many generations because of lots of societal reasons, which I won't dive into now. It's, it's complex and detailed. But what that training allows me to do is to support mums privately, one-to-one, you know, when they recognise that they're struggling and they might have been on that clinical care pathway. So they might have had antidepressants or still on them. They might have had those talk therapies and they've kind of reached a plateau. So they're, you know, they're finding their time experiencing, well, I'm all right, but I'm not all right. Like you say, it got to the stable just level. just got to this kind of stable level. That you're not thriving. You're not thriving. You still might not be feeling joy. You mm. still might be having a level of anxiety, this kind of constant level that you're kind of burying because you're like no it's okay I know it's all okay but inside your nervous system you're, bubbling. Like, you're just bubbling exactly mm. and you know you've got things like irritability you're overwhelmed very easily you're still emotional to things that for other people wouldn't even trigger anything but you're quite triggered emotionally so I work with those mums looking at solutions to bring them into recovery mm-hmm. in their own time and it's you know it's it's not counseling it is very much a forward-looking process, if you like. So how can we get you from where you are now to where you would like to be? Mm -hmm. And of course, that journey is never linear. There's ups and downs and there's lots of rabbit holes to go down as to, you know, why you might be the way you are and, you know, why you're having the experience that you're having. So we just deep dive into, you know, all the conversations I have. There's a lot of space holding, which means just listening, really, and allowing mums and women to really feel heard and seen in their own space and their own time. Because postnatally, we have a very societal, like I said, it's the sound of music, isn't it? It's like, you know, we're bouncing back to the gym. We're back to work and we have our career. We are makeup and hair done and nails and Instagram ready at all times. Trying to have it all. Trying to have it all. And so when we can't have it all, we, you know, have feelings of failure. And I think, don't think people ever feel truly, yeah, mums don't. We we self-silence a lot. We keep our mouths closed and we don't talk about it because we don't want to be seen to be getting it wrong or... 
failing or weaker or, you know, all the words. You're there to listen. So I'm there to listen. And And it's a holistic approach. You can combine all your different services as one, really, can't you? A lot of, uh, you know, some of the mums that come through my door are actually just needing a lot of care. Mm. You know, so just real gentle care that they might not be able to access in other places in their life. You know, they might not get that from their husband because that's not a relationship they have with the husband or, mm. you know, they might not get that from their parents because their parents live 500 miles away. You know, we yeah. don't live in the villages we used to live in. And so... Takes a village to raise a child. It does take a village that? to raise a child, yeah. And, you know, a lot of our villages are disconnected. They're online. And mm. when someone actually just needs a hug and a cup of tea and a cry and a chat and a non-judgmental space, yeah, I do, I, you know... I enjoy that. I enjoy holding space for women to voice, to tell me their story and ask questions and, and we deep dive and into And you've been there so you can relate to that. Yeah. So yeah. you're the perfect person. Give advice yeah. and listen and understand yeah. and give empathy. And, yeah. And, and help them reach their own conclusions and solutions and, mm. you know, the role of coach or, you know, what I do is um, very much helping people find their own way and in some ways helping yeah. them find their voice to be able to ask for help and support because there'll be reasons why they haven't got that voice and that's sustainable past. then isn't yeah. it because yeah. then they can yeah. keep going yeah yeah and so yeah. yeah so that's what I do and I you know try and involve myself in as many mental health conversations as I can online and locally yeah. and you know try and kind of advocate for change really and sit in that space of mums are not okay mm. we, you know there's we we like to think they are but Majority aren't. <laughs> well, perinatal mental health care costs over eight billion pounds per year, mm. which seems extraordinarily high. Mm. So I'm wondering, I'm sure you're the same, Louise, if this cost could be significantly reduced if there was more preventative care along the way rather than just focusing when it actually happens. Yeah. I think that's right. I think antenatally, like I said, we you know, we do really well antenatally about talking about the practicalities of yeah. looking after your child. It might be different now. Like I'm seven years on, I'm not aware of any offerings that do offer antenatal mental health chats. Mm-hmm. They may well be out there. I just don't know about them. But, you know, certainly my experience and the mums that I talk to, just there's no conversation around, you know, how you're going to look after your mental health, you know, what support network. There's a lot of chat around, let's do your birth plan. What kind of feeding method are you considering? You know, are you going to go back? There's there's a lot of things around, you know, looking after the baby. Centred around the baby. Centred around the baby. There's no conversation around the practicalities of... How are you going to look after yourself? How are you going to look after yourself? And how are you going to look after your relationships? Mm. And if your perfect birth plan doesn't happen, you know, good old hypnobirthing zen me, literally from one extreme to the other, you know, heavy breathing in a pool. <laughs> you know, surrounded by God knows what bodily fluids. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, you know, straight onto the operating table. Yeah. You know, it, it literally went from, nah, to dear God. <laughs> and how are you going to cope with that? And how, how are you going to cope with that? And how are you going to feel about that change of plan? Exactly. How are you going to feel about that change of plan? You know, because... That experience alone, for me, that was really traumatic. And there's, you know, there's even a grieving of the process. So you think you're going to have this beautiful natural labor. And then all of a sudden, that experience that you desperately wanted and you trained for with your breathing and your audios and all the rest of it, it's snatched away from you. Mm. And then there's loads of questions raised about yourself and can I cope? And is that a failure? And, you know, this turmoil goes on in your head for some people, not everybody. And there's no outlet for that. Well, like you say, that's why it all came to a head at the end, mm. because she'd been through all these mm. 
traumas, mm. but you didn't get the specific support on each stage, That's did right. you? Yeah. So you had the miscarriage, yeah. trying yeah. to conceive. Yeah. Then you had the pain mm. during pregnancy. Mm. If you had the little snippets, yeah. which yeah. would have only needed yeah. these little snippets of support yeah. along the way, yeah. then you would have kept well. Exactly. And I think that's the thing. If someone, I think the prenatal, the antenatal care, there needs to be more questions asked because there, there is only kind of checking on the documentation that the midwives use to check in. And this isn't a criticised criticism of the midwives. They're doing as much as they can with the resources and money that is mm. allocated to them. But I think from a mental health point of view, if the checks were more robust, you know, so if, and we know the red flags to potential postnatal depression or mental health illness, you know, not everyone experiences them, but the majority of women have red flags in pregnancy, but the conversations aren't there and the time isn't allocated to it because it's all about the health of the baby. Yeah. And, you know, I'd already had depression when my dad died, but when I had my check-in and was asked the question, have you had any mental health experiences? I said, yes, but it was a box that was ticked. And that was that. Yeah. There was never follow-up. There was never, okay, let's have a deeper chat about that. Because that could lead to something. Exactly. How are you feeling about that? Exactly. And also the practicalities around, you know, there's no conversations around. And I don't know why we're scared to have these conversations. Because like you say, it'd be a preventative measure. If in antenatal classes, there was a conversation around, okay, we've all got our birth plans. Let's just say there is a risk that all that will Go go out the window. And things, we all know these things, we all know emergency C-sessions exist. We all know that things can go wrong in birth. And the reality is, is that once you've got that baby in your arms and this event has happened, what you go, how are you going to practically support each other as a partnership if you're a husband and wife or what support has mum got around her? For example, me wasn't expecting to have a C-section. Husband went back to two works yeah. two weeks after Finn was born. Self-employed. Self-employed. No one living locally. I couldn't drive. I mm. wasn't supposed to be lifting my child. We had a 40 kilo Labrador at the time that needed walking. So there's, I had still had my pelvic pain. So I was limping around everywhere. Yeah. Exhausted. You know, there's no practical conversations around your support network. And in the unlikely event, you know, we do it every time we get on an airplane. In the unlikely event, there's a crash. The mask will drop down. Yeah. There is no chat of the mask. <laughs> nobody's getting a safety briefing. No. <laughs> you know, nobody's telling us where the exits are. Where do we go? What do we do? So yeah. I think those conversations antenatally would be massively beneficial. Yeah. And there's a lot of value in peer-to-peer work with that. So women like me who've experienced those events... Or even putting women in a room that might have some red flags in pregnancy, so pain or already existing depression or already had a mental health experience or infertility journey, Mm -hmm. you know, getting those women in the same room and having a conversation about how are you feeling about it? Who's got anyone got any concerns? You know, because you go into antenatal at the hospital or NCT and it's very much about the woolly boob, right? Mm. Everyone's got these woolly boobs that you're (laughs) learning to feed from or, you know, there's a pelvis or whatever it is. There's no opportunity. And everyone's smiling with their partners, with their birthing partner. <laughs> if they've got one, so ready to be a mum. <laughs> you know, but there's no kind of, there's no opportunity That's to actually... That's such a good idea, having that group. I'm just having that group. And I'm thinking time and money, it would take less time and less money to do something like that yeah. Yeah. than it takes afterwards when it's all come when to it's a head. it's crushed down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like just to have that outlet to be able to say... I'm really worried about this mm. and I've been worried, you know, I've got these concerns and to really talk through, you know, we have our paper birth plan An addition to that birth plan should be what's going to happen if, you know, you don't want to catastrophize, but if you, if there was a situation where 
you needed more support than and your husband had to go back to work or your partner or whoever it is, wife, whatever. How what are you gonna do then? You know, do you have family locally? Have you thought about if you've got a large dog that needs walking every day, if you have to have a C section, you're gonna have six weeks of not being able to walk your dog. Yeah. So who's gonna do that? It's the living practicalities of how you manage and live yeah. in the unlikely event that something doesn't go to plan. And I think those preventative conversations, we shy away from them because we, you know, mums, I, I guess you could say mums are worried about worried enough about going to give birth, right? So maybe we shy away from them because we don't want to increase that worry. But I think for some, I think, I just think it's, a, you know, it's an important conversation to have. And then a lot of the mums that I speak to say the same. If we'd have just written that down, or even if we just thought, brought it into the spotlight, because who thinks about it? No one thinks, well, if this goes tits up, I'm, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Even the conversation with your partner. Yes. We don't, we don't have many practical conversations, do we? Yeah. Oh, we're about to have a baby. Yeah. Who's going to change the nappies yeah. at this time? And who's going to yeah. get up in the night? And we've what sort if of we just, can't breastfeed? Yeah, go into it, don't we? Yeah. Blind. Yeah. For, and, women, for women that want to breastfeed, that conversation of what if we can't breastfeed? Yeah. Or what if, what if I really struggle to breastfeed? Or what if we start off and then I get, you know, raw nipples? You know, I have to have yeah. a break. You're going to have to feed with a bottle because I'll be tired. Or if I get sick... You know, there's so many variables, isn't mm. there? But we, like you said, we just don't have those we conversations. We don't encourage those conversations, no. do we? And because the expectation is that we will just get on with it. The expectation of society from everybody is we all know how to do it and it will all be fine and we'll just get on with it. The narrative is we will be fine. You'll be fine. It's just part of motherhood. You'll be fine. So we live in that space of That's if you're I, anything I other that. than fine, yeah. you're failing. I got told that at my six-week check. I went mm. in like... Like in tears, I was out. literally yeah. away. And they said, "You'll be fine." Yeah, and I was like, oh, "Okay, yeah." Oh, maybe I'm okay then. <laughs> Why am I okay? So then you leave your clinician appointments being told you're fine. Fine. <laughs> fine. It's almost like they say it because they want you to believe it. <laughs> if we say it enough, they'll be fine. <laughs> it's kind of like toxic positivity, isn't it? It's like. Yeah. You'll be fine. Get over it. Think happy thoughts. You won't get depression. Just think happy. It's like, well, no, it doesn't work like that. I'm thinking um, about it. That's what our mums used to say when we were growing up. Be fine. Get up. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a total, you know, it's a total invalidation of actually, no, my knee is like pouring with blood and I'm not all right. But we do it, don't we? We all do it. Toughen up. Come on. Get on with it. So if you've had that narrative as a child, you will carry that into womanhood. You will carry that into motherhood, believing that. You can just brush any feelings away, the car, brush any pain away, because mm. that's what we do. Because otherwise, if you don't do anything else but that, you're not a good person. <laughs> I love deep, it. isn't it? It's it deep. is. It's deep. <laughs> I love the idea what you said about bringing everyone together before having the babies. Do you think there's anything else missing along that pathway? What do you think is the most essential perinatal mental health support that you could offer? Yeah, this is difficult. It's a very, you know, we'd have to have infrastructure change in the NHS, mm. massive investment. I think that at a time I was part of something called the Dorset Maternal Mental Health Forum, which was a bringing together of experts, clinicians and lived experience people like myself into a space to talk about perinatal, postnatal mental health in Dorset. And it was a group that came together to look at the strategic development of better postnatal care. And a question that I asked during that forum, because there are hundreds of women like myself who would willingly go and do it voluntarily you know just to step in and stop any mum experiencing what I experienced what other mums experienced Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of warriors in this space that are like just waiting you know but obviously the access is blocked by the ability for the NHS to open their doors and welcome those people in because Mm -hmm. they don't have 
the funding or the ability to train those people, DBS check them. So, you know, they're all the so much safeguarding involved yeah. and you know mental health is a dodgy taste to chat about it's, you know, unless you're qualified it's a, it's a dangerous place to be in isn't it because mm-hmm. you you know you can say the wrong thing if you're not trained properly or so one of the questions I asked was why is the NHS not able to refer out to charities to private sector coaches or counsellors or whatever and because obviously if it's so under-resourced, the resources are out there, the NHS just can't afford to pay for them. Mm-hmm. And for someone like me, you know, I could afford to pay a little bit. I was lucky, you know, I could I could have financially afforded to pay to attend some support groups or go to a group counselling or peer-to-peer group. Mm. But you um, just didn't know about just them. didn't or, know about them. Yeah. And also because the NHS don't signpost it. Yeah. Because they can't, because they're worried about the association if that support isn't at the level they, that it needs to be. Yeah. So they can't refer out because they don't have enough ability to be able to quality check yeah. who they're referring out to, which is a real shame because there are so many organisations, charities, Dorpip is the uh, Dorset Infant Parent Partnership. You know, they offer reduced and sometimes free counselling for families who are struggling, but no one, you know, people know about them, but no one knows about them at the same yeah. time. And how we get the information out to, you know, the marketing of postnatal care in the mental health realms is is something else that I raised because there was a big kind of chat around, oh, yeah, we put it on the NHS newsletter and we can put it on the NHS Facebook pages. Mm. And, um, you know, my kind of point was there's not a single mum on the planet that's hanging out on the NHS newsletter or on, unless they work for the NHS or um, on the NHS Facebook page. You know, they're yeah. hanging out in the apps. And actually, the place that they're really hanging out is all the major supermarkets looking for crack nipple cream and nappies. <laughs> you know, that's where we're hanging out. Yeah. Or the little sound centre, Prana Reza. You know, <laughs> for those people that don't know, the little dance centre is a leisure centre near us. And I said, why aren't we, why aren't the NHS approaching the major chain supermarkets and boots and those kind of places mm-hmm. to put up in those aisles yeah. all the signposting leaflets, all, you know, call, call this number, this is who's available to you. Because if I'd have seen that, next to my nipple cream nappies and God knows what else, mm-hmm. you know, in those baby aisles, which is where I was hanging out most of the time, you know, <laughs> on, I would have seen it. And I might have just, so, you know, surreptitiously picked up a leaflet. Yeah. I might have, as simple as that, you know, I, I did from my own, from my business knowledge, you know, the marketing side of things, you know, go where your audience is. Mm. Just go. And so my big thing was like, go where the mums are. Where are the mums? The mums, like I said, are hanging out in supermarkets. They're, you know, going to mum and baby groups, smiling, pretending they're all having a lovely time. <laughs> Singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star for the eighth time that week. In the library? Yeah, desperately rocking and, like, you know, doing, <laughs> painting a bad picture. Not all, not all of us, I was, not everybody is. You know, yeah, we're all at Riggle and Rhyme in the library, right? Yeah. We're all, um, those are the places we're hanging out. So those are the places where the signposting needs to be, you know, not in the GP surgeries, not on the NHS newsletter and stuff like that. So I think investment, investment in marketing. And I think one of the other big things as well was peer support on the wards, on the maternity wards. So... I'm a massive advocate. One of, one of my most prominent memories is uh, well, the night after Finn was born, I think about 4am, I was in tears. He was in the nursery because he was having antibiotics. I was on IV. Everyone was on IV. We were all, you know, really thick. And um, I remember sitting in the nursery and I was bawling my eyes out. And there were midwives. Obviously, you know, they're racing around. They're super busy yeah. looking after babies and mums and in the NICU unit, super scary situations. And I sat there and this midwife kind of, she walked past the nursery and then she came back around and she was like, you all right? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm all right or not. And she was like, it's all right. You're just emotional. You're really tired. You're okay. Don't worry. This is this is all normal. This is all normal. And I kind of wanted at that time to be able to go, 
to talk, you know, I wanted to yeah. be able to talk to someone. I actually wanted, wanted to debrief because I was, mm. you know, I was kind of, mm, what's just happened? And I think that if they were able to have peer support, train peer support workers in the wards, bringing around the cup of teas, doing whatever they, you know, having a chat to the mums, are you okay? The baby's fine. The baby is next to you. The baby is breathing fed, you know, the yeah. midwives, everyone's watching that very clearly in the background. But it's the mums that miss the conversations, the people who've got time to sit and and these chat to support them. people might be able to be volunteers. Exactly. Right? They could yeah. be volunteers. You know, mm. I would quite happily go into a maternal ward mm. and sit. Two or three hour shifts, you go in, you sit and chat. You know, like people, people have, you know, we do it for elderly. We do it for yeah. the elderly. We go in, you know, we there's do. volunteers that yeah. can do that. And for some reason, the maternity wards are very, very closed. But I get it, not for some reason, you know, there's babies yeah. and people are very vulnerable yeah. in that space. But, you know, I think that would be really helpful. Or even just, and even just a tea room in a maternal ward where you could, as a mum, wander along when your baby's sleeping in their little car or push them along, yeah. you know, just go in. Just and full of ideas. Full of ideas. Love it. Just need people to action them. <laughs> yeah. I think looking on the bright side, though, perinatal mental health has moved up the political agenda in recent years and funding has been allocated by governments mm. in England and Wales mm. for the mental health services, perinatal mental mm. health services. However, decisions about whether and how much to invest money is at a local level. Do you yeah. think there's much room for improvement or are we going in the right direction, Louise? What do you yeah, think? we're going in the right direction. I think that, you know, there are some brilliant advocates online. You know, we've now got Pregnant and Screwed. We've got uh, Mother Pucker. There are so many. We've got mm. Zoe Blasky from Motherkind, who's local here in Dorset. You know, fantastic podcasters. People, you know, the word is getting out there so there's lots more advocation i'm going to use it even though it might be a word <laughs> Lot, well, lots more advocation in the maternal mental health space i think local level investment i think that we should absolutely be heading in the direction of creating what i would call postnatal hubs which are mm. much more mum focused than baby focused you know the people that would run those kind of hubs could be volunteers they could be people like me who are privately trained they could be you know nhs operated or supported councillor supported but i think that kind of multi-agency multi-factor space that mums can go to where they can drop in or they can book an appointment and they can get multiple therapies so that might be talk therapy that might be massage therapy that might be you know their baby childcare space included in that in that yeah. hub a bit like we had at Little Down, you know, mm-hmm. where you can drop your baby for a couple of hours and you can focus on yourself. Yeah, exercise. Exercise, you know, and even just sit down and have a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> just have, have a hot cup of tea with some other people situation. that are in the same situation. Mm. You know, I would love to see that level of investment. Oh, but, you know, I think that the, but the specialist care is coming through. So there are specialist perinatal mental health midwives now. Yeah. I know that the last time I was involved in the Dorset Maternal Mental Health Forum, they were talking about developing wellbeing practitioners in those maternal spaces, which would mean someone who was dedicated to signposting to mums immediately. Like if these are the, you know, and, and I think health officers are getting more training and midwives certainly are. It's definitely much higher on the radar, but there's always going to be work to be done. I think one of the biggest things around that is, you know, there needs to be intrinsic societal change in the value we place on motherhood. And that's a really deep conversation. <laughs> that's, another, that's another little rabbit hole to go down. But, yeah. you know, we I don't think we value mums and motherhood. And that coupled with the value of women in society, which again is changing. But is it changing? I don't know. 
it's a deep societal conversation. It's, you know, it's, it's getting with global change on how we value women and mums in society and the important role of motherhood. And, and that holistic approach, yeah. you were saying as well, from yeah. start to finish. And Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, yeah, that just that kind of, yeah, the ability for people to be able to look at lots of different avenues to support themselves and not just, you know, not just have this thing of like, take some medication and go for a chat. Because the reality is, is it, you know, it's too linear. It's too linear, and also there's no focus on well, what are you actually eating. Because you know, we do have this kind of narrative of running on coffee or why <laughs> mummy drinks, you know, uh, or you know why mummy is only eating cake. You know, it's like those lifestyle choices have a direct impact on our mental health, mm. and there's no chat about that. Louise, is there any advice that you would give a mum to help get their mental health back on track? After I'd been through my talk therapy and my medication, and like I said, I found I was at that kind of weird plateau of just going, well, here I am, being a mum, not mm. really thriving at all. Not even thriving is probably too extreme, you know, not just feeling really numb and like, is this it? Is this, is this, I'm okay because I'm not, you know, crying my eyes out and having all those horrible thoughts, but I'm not right. You know, yeah. I'm not being the person I want to be or the mum I want to be or the wife I want to be or whatever. So, that is, you know, I've been medicated. I've done some talk therapy and I was like, that isn't enough. Why aren't I feeling okay now? Everyone told me this would make me better. Why aren't I okay? So that's when I kind of took a much more holistic approach to my own recovery. Mm-hmm. And something I talked about the women I work with is I kind of have these, if you like, these pillars of well-being. So we do look at nutrition. We look at obviously mindset and, you know, how where you are in your head about being able to support yourself and ask for support. We dive into exercise and nervous system related stress mm-hmm. in relation to bouncing back and going into a hit class and some people can do that i'm not saying that's not for you know you shouldn't do that but stre- exercise actually at that level can stress your body further and when you've already got a high level st- you know you're running yeah. at moderate stress level mm. to add that on top can sometimes just be keep you up rather than help you come down so exercise is great i'm not saying you know always exercise but if you're finding that it's making you more exhausted and you have, you know, a lot of pain afterwards, then those can be symptoms of that, that exercise isn't great for you. Mm-hmm. So it's choosing the right exercise Choosing the right for exercise you. for you at the time, yeah. And understanding that rest and prioritising rest, again, it's that ability for... I had to really learn to say no. Mm. I had to learn to clear my diary. I had to learn to be really stronger in my boundaries and really assess what is my bandwidth energy-wise... And when, you know, the weekends are full with kids and parties and barbecues and socialising, just actually really saying, well, okay, I can socialise for a couple of hours, but that is going to, I will be exhausted after that. And I will need to step back and go home and be by myself and have some quiet time and, you know, and asking for the facilitation of that in your relationship for some people is really hard. And obviously for some mums or parents that might not be accessible because they don't, they're a single parent. So there's, you know, I had to really look at that. So we've got focusing on rest looking at, you know, mindset and headspace work, if you like, coaching work, exercise, nutrition. And yeah, I mean, I use a lot of aromatherapy because aromatherapy is brilliant for the nervous system. Mm-hmm. You can see my little tubes of rollables. They live on my windowsill over oh, there. Look. So I choose one, um, you know, when I'm feeling a bit irritable or I just need to... And, and aromatherapy is, you know, scientifically proven to work with your nervous system mm-hmm. to you know, regulate yourself, bring you out. Do you use those in your, the oils in your massages? I do. Yeah. Mm. I use them massages and all the women I work with get rollables and spend their lives slapping with therapy on. And, 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 you know, it's it. There's, there's plenty of research out there that proves that the use of scent 
a sort of nervous system regulation works. Mm. So, which is why lavender, you know, lavender is very common. I don't like the smell of lavender. I use different I scents. That. Yeah, I use different scents. So, you know, it's things like rose oil. Rose is um, renowned for comfort. So if you're feeling emotionally sad, unhappy, yeah. lonely, if you're having any of those emotions, using rose is really soothing really soothing to the nervous system it's it's a loving kind of a love scent so you, it's, it's a bit deep really but it, it helps that kind of inner child that's feeling a bit sad mm. if, you put, if you burn rose oil or even smell roses it's very comforting Ooh, lovely yeah so there's so there's that kind of thing which yeah. for some people is quite woo you know that's very holistic but yeah there's lots of things Going back that you can to do the rest side mm. of things i also rem- remember trying to have a little sleep when mm. the babies were napping i could oh. never get to no. sleep you were so tired, yeah. but I could never, ever get to sleep. It's the brilliant line, isn't it? Sleep when your baby sleeps. Yeah. yeah. But is rest just as good as having a sleep? 100%. So yoga nidra is said to be something like the equivalent. So an hour's yoga nidra class, or even half an hour, is said to be the equivalent of like four hours of, you know, a good night's sleep or something. No way. Yeah, it's really, really good. So I um, finally resisted the urge but I did I do a lot of um, mindfulness as well so that's the one I forgot in my pillar stupid yeah Yeah, a lot of mindfulness work so Mm -hmm. bringing yourself back to the present Mm -hmm. when you're feeling anxious and how do we live uh, you know how do we live mindfully and that's not all about being sat on the floor and you know omming every five minutes it's just it's it's a coping mechanism you can use it as a coping mechanism include your walk that you do down Woodland Walk exactly exactly listening to those lovely birds go I yeah so I I listen to a meditation as I'm walking actually because I find Mm -hmm. Active meditation much easier than sitting meditation, mm-hmm. and that's only to do with my own physical body, the pain levels that I have from you know it's kind of a hangover from my my pregnancy injuries. But to actually sit still, I can't quieten my mind because my body is triggering pain. So mm-hmm. I have to do something active that allows me to get into a rhythm, and then I can listen and you know bring myself down. Nervous system. So yeah, I the rest wise definitely. Like if you can't sleep then um don't yeah you know i think i think the key thing is that it's things like you know we take that opportunity when the baby's sleeping to go and do all the housework don't we We do all the things that we need to get done but we have to look at the reason why we think those things need to get done mm-hmm. and it's actually part of our conditioning that you know having a clean and tidy house and all the laundry folded and the house looking wonderful <laughs> makes us a good mum you know it's our own definition and our societal definition of what is a good mum what is a successful woman? So there's all these questions that I talk about with my mum. So, yeah. Yeah. She, sit, she sits here with dishes in the fridge. There's dishes in my sink. <laughs> you can't see them, but there's loads of dishes. <laughs> and then we've got arts and crafts, creative writing, music yeah. and dance. They're all really yeah. beneficial, aren't they? I Journaling. love dance class. Yeah, you go dancing, don't you? <laughs> I love to walk. I love to hike. When I'm feeling brave, I'll get in the sea. I love to be on the beach. And also, you know, there is things like fun socialising with your friends, like connecting. Some of them struggle with that. I struggled with that postnatally when I was ill. Finding that connection with your friends that, you know, where you can kind of laugh, really belly laugh. I find that you can really belly laugh with and be silly with. And yeah, the colouring thing. I do a lot of Lego, actually. Don't judge me. (laughs) That's mindfulness though, isn't it? It is. Anything when you're doing stuff with your hands, one thing creates a mindful, you know, mindful experience because you're you're concentrating on something, and you're not doing a million, yeah, a million things at once. Exactly. So I got into Zadouko as well. I really try and fall. My husband loves to watch a movie at night. He likes watching movies. He likes watching box sets. And I got pulled into that trap actually. But I then realised that I could probably do more productive, helpful things for my mind. And again, it's just, you know, it's hard to find your voice to turn around to your partner who you love and say, 
actually, do you know what? I don't want to watch Walking Dead tonight. <laughs> <laughs> because you get into a thing where that's that's how you spend time together, right? That's yeah. how you connect at the and end I of the entire day. A lot of those dramas and please, they kind of trigger. Absolutely, they're hugely anxiety. anxiety. Yes, yeah, and yeah. And then you sit there eating chocolate. Yes, because you're like. <laughs> self-soothe, self-soothe, quick, pour me another bottle of wine, <laughs> you know? And if you're already running on that kind of high cortisol level and then you sit down and watch a zombie film or a paranormal film or mm. whatever, or even something like I watched one the other day called The Mother, brilliant film, where Jennifer Lopez is, but she gives, oh, she, yeah. she, or she has to give her child up for yeah. adoption because she's got people after her. I refuse to watch that. I saw um, the description, I was like, I'm not oh watching that. God, like, no. You know, I mean, I can't even watch Lion King without crying when, you know, Simba's dad dies. I mean, jeez. Finding yeah, Nemo. It's finding Nemo, exactly. So, so you know, it's all those things, like, being really considered in the media that you engage with as a as a mum, or if you're, you know, if you have mental health and you're wobbly or feeling low, you know, you have to really check in with yourself and go, which is, again, a rare thing that we do, you know, am I okay? How am I feeling? Do I have the capacity to watch Walking Dead? <laughs> Which on some days you might. Absolutely. And then other days. Other days you just have to think what would be more beneficial. And I think, you know, there needs to be real clarity around if I take the bills and do the talk therapy and I, you know, am I going to have to do this stuff? Will six weeks be okay of doing the exercise and doing the mindfulness and doing the stuff? My personal experience is it's a daily practice yeah. for me now. It's a daily practice to protect myself from the wolf. It's I a lifestyle. It. And it's, it's a lifestyle. And it's sustainable, isn't yes. it? Because if you yeah. do CBT yeah. for six weeks yeah. and have medication for yeah. a few months yeah. and then just go back to normal yeah. after that, then it's not going to be yeah. a long-term Absolutely not. healing no. process, is it? No, no. You've got and to find ways of... Yeah, you know. you've got to find ways that, you know, fit in with your lifestyle. And also I think that, you know, for me, because, you know, the place that I went to was in my head was really dark. I mean, it, you know, I would say that there were a couple of times I had suicidal thoughts, never acted them, always went straight to the GP with that. But that's where I was in my mm. journey. And from the outside in, no one ever would have seen that. And I think that, you know, that is a dark space to be in. And I never want to go back to that headspace again. So I now have, and I know the things that might potentially send me into that headspace. Mm-hmm. So I'm really protective of my mental health. And that is a true sense of self-love for me is making sure that, you know, I'm, I've really signed up and committed to the fact that I don't want to put, I never want to put my mental health at risk ever again. So I don't, you know, and, and it, people would say that, you know, some of my behaviours around that might be extreme, you know, like I chose to be pretty much sober a few years ago. I, you know, I don't drink alcohol because for me, that's a real trigger. You know, I do what think about my nutrition and what I'm eating. I'm really aware of when I start to feel overwhelmed or exhausted and I very quickly put things in place to navigate that. You know, life is stressful. There is going to be stressors. But for me, I think if you're somebody that has that underlying experience of mental health, when those stressors come, you have to have the tools and ability to be able to protect yeah. yourself. It's being aware of it, isn't it? Being aware of managing. it. And managing and pulling in the right right resources and right people to help you navigate that time more successfully, I think, rather than sitting there yourself going, I'm fine. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So Finn is seven now. So how is he doing? And how are you doing now, Louise? I'm bloody brilliant, thanks, <laughs> Kieran. <laughs> I'm You're all fine. Right. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> that awful word. Do you know, when people ask me how I am now, I'm that annoying person that goes, do you know what? I'm thriving. I, I yeah, I can confidently say that, you know, because fine for me was the word I used when I was sick, mm. you know, and people didn't know I was sick um, to the extent that I was. So I try and avoid using it at all costs because fine for me is, meh, I'm not all right, actually. I'm kind mm. of just getting on with it. So now I, you know, when people ask me, I'm like, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm all right. I'm bloody brilliant. Well. Bloody brilliant. Because in comparison to where I was, I am doing bloody well. <laughs> you know, that's not to say I don't have days when I cry and I don't have days when I'm massively overwhelmed by life and, you know, no one's infallible, are they? But you've so, got those tools in place I've to help you get through. Exactly. And I think, you know, I, for me, I've got a lot of pride in, well, I'm going to say it, I've got a lot of pride in myself for sticking what to my guns achieved? and committing to it. Yeah, and, and coming out of it and knowing, you know, and that's built a lot of resilience as well now because I know that, you know, life's hurdles, they're going to come, like my dog dying last January. Seven years ago, Kiri, that probably would have tipped me over the edge. You know, mm. it was a hugely emotional experience. But from the learnings and from my own deep dive and from the trainings that I've done now, I've got all the tools to carry me through that. And that grief process from losing my dog, you know, I think I said at the time, it was as triggering as when my dad died, you know, they're a member of your family. And I, um, yeah, I rode that grief wave like a professional surfer, let me tell you. I was pretty proud of myself. <laughs> it was like, sounds weird, doesn't it, to say, but it was like... I was expecting full fallout, you know, from that because it was kind of weird. There was a big build up to it because he was ill. And, um, and I didn't, I didn't crash because I put all the protection mechanisms in place to allow me to travel that stage of my life successfully without it clearly impacted my mental health for a time, but you know, not anywhere near as long as it would have if I didn't have those tools. So, um, yeah, Amazing. I'm right. And Finn is, you know, well, you've seen him. He's a big. <laughs> He's a big boy now, he's seven and he's at school and he's enjoying it. And something that I'm really, you know, and there might be people that disagree with this, but, you know, I because I've had my mental health experience, I don't focus on it, but we do talk about mental well-being. You know, we don't talk about depression, but we do talk about his emotions and yeah. him understanding, you know, that all the kind of what are perceived as negative emotions, so sadness and anger and those kind of things, are part of our human experience. Yeah, they're not negative. They're not negative. They are emotions. They're just part of it. They're yeah. emotions. And how do we how do we navigate those? Mm. So we have conversations around that. And that's a great thing to listen to my child talk about and recognise his mental well-being, especially as a boy. Yeah. So I'm hoping that he will... Am I thankful for my experiences? You know, we live in this space of like, you know, be grateful for every experience. Am I thankful for the path that my maternal mental health took? Yes, because it's led me to the space that I'm at now. Do I wish it would have been different and trouble free? Yes, of course I do. You know, there's no, there's no avoiding that. Mm. But as it stands now, yeah, we're all doing really well thank and you very much now you're in a place to help others and, and now i'm in a place to help others and to share that being an knowledge amazing and... mum yeah yeah thing. yeah hopefully ask me when he's a teenager i'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're hanging out down the park and then <laughs> then i might need all my aerotherapy oils <laughs> i'll be down there spraying it on the move yeah calm down calm down lavender. Yeah, lavender. <laughs> don't smoke that spray this <laughs> yeah watch this face watch this face yeah okay finally louise are there any websites resources out there that you could point to people in the direction of yes i mean obviously you can follow me on the socials yes obviously so i'm at nurture nourish be underscore and at mums be well on facebook my website nurture nourish com. And definitely, yeah, of course, all the usual ones. So there's Pandas Foundation, if you are struggling with postnatal depression. Mm -hmm. There is, obviously your GPs, Dorset Mind, lots and lots of mental health. They do this, Dorset Mind, I've got to give them a shout out because they do this amazing thing called the Pause Box. Right. And it's £7.50 a month. The money goes to charity and you get an arts and crafts box every month. And it's called Pause and you get to do, and it's all different stuff. So it gives you the opportunity very cheaply while supporting a charity who deals with mental health to do a little bit of arts and crafts, 
It's phenomenal. It's so good. So everyone sign up to Pause, which is on the Mind website. I think they're still doing it. And there's also Dorpit as well, who are, like I said, the Dorset Infant Parent Partnership. Those would be the three main ones that I would say. I'm I'm really nervous now because I know there's loads and, of course, I can't think of them. Um, Yeah, Zoe Blasky on Motherkind, that podcast is great. She talks about maternal mental wellness and this journey from, you know, kind of woman to motherhood, yeah. Maternal Mental Health Alliance.org. Yes, Maternal Mental Health Alliance, yeah. And then GP... A&E. GP, A&E, um, 999 Samaritans. Yeah. If you're in crisis uh, and you're having thoughts of, you know, harming yourself or your baby or someone else, then absolutely GP, mm. absolutely 999. And all the perinatal health team, if you're in those very early stages of yeah. um, postnatal. It's up to a year, the perinatal. Yeah. 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 Ring them, the number, the number will give you, give you GP or, yeah, Samaritans. And, yeah, ask for help. Just yeah. ask. You know, there's so much help out there if we can be brave enough to ask for it yes i think yeah well thank you so much louise thank you good luck in everything that you're doing you've got so many ideas and i just can't wait to see what you do next thank you very much kiri thanks for having me that's wonderful thank you so much for listening to the podcast today if you haven't already please follow kiri presents or inspiring stories on the podcast platform of your choice And don't forget to share on the socials if you enjoyed it. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.